Broadway Binge Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Hannah. And we are going to tell you the history of American musical theater by reviewing and ranking all of the most important musicals from Showboat to today. Today we'll be talking about Annie Get Your Gun. Opened in 1946 with music and lyrics by Irving Berlin, book by Dorothy Fields and her brother Herbert Fields, produced by Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, so, hey, Hannah, how are how you doing? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing really well. Um, I'm feeling that we want to reveal to our audience the irony of this uh, podcast, or else it's going to just uh, haunt us the whole time. Yeah, so we actually already <laughs> recorded Annie Get Your Gun uh, two weeks ago. If, if you're one of our listeners who's listening to these episodes as they come out, you might be wondering why there was no episode mm-hmm. last Monday. Um, it was because Hannah's side of the recording... <laughs> got corrupted and mysteriously disappeared um so we could not upload that and uh yep that's the truth um and uh i accept full responsibility for my computer's failures (laughs) yeah i mean it wasn't hannah's like personal moral failing it was a computer issue that hopefully will not be replicated uh but the good news is so irving berlin is a really important uh person to american history composer and we did like 20 minutes of Irving Berlin material, which was almost entirely me talking and playing Irving Berlin music clips. And every now and then I'd be like, oh, Hannah, do you recognize this song? And then she would say something. So since Hannah's audio is gone, but mine is not, what we're going to do now is I'm going to like condense that like about 20 minutes down to like a lesser amount, maybe 12-ish minutes of just me talking and playing audio clips. So you'll still get your Irving Berlin coverage, Ooh. everything we did. Uh, and our last recording session won't be wasted. And then we're going to come back from that and go right into the discussion of Annie, Get Your Gun. Um, so here we go. Now you're <laughs> going to be transported back in time. And just to enjoy Jeremy talking. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I guess we'll, we'll get in a little bit about Annie, Get Your Gun first. Uh, so the show itself, um, Dorothy Fields had the idea. Um, she was a really popular lyricist um, and playwright, book writer. And she had the idea to do a musical about Annie Oakley to star her friend Ethel Merman. And uh, she went to producer Mike Todd about it. He turned her down. So she approached Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, And they didn't want to write the show themselves, but they did want to produce it. Because now, you know, they were wealthy from their Oklahoma and Carousel success. So they decided to produce um, Annie Get Your Gun for Dorothy Fields. And they were going to have Jerome Kern, who was the old partner of Hammerstein in Showboat. So our very first episode, Kern wrote that music and then Fields was going to write the lyrics and then her she and her brother Herbert together would write the book but Kern was really old at this point so three days after coming back to New York from Hollywood to start working on this he collapsed on the street due to a cerebral hemorrhage and died um and then the producers instead said let's ask Irving Berlin you know he's he's like been around the block a while like let's let's give it a go um, and now we're going to take a detour for some time and talk about Irving Berlin, who he is and why he's important. So Irving Berlin is possibly and probably the greatest songwriter in American history. He defines American music to the extent that no other songwriter ever has. And if you're sitting there wondering, you know, like, well, what's so great about Irving Berlin? What makes him the greatest songwriter of all time? I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. You'll realize how many songs he wrote. But basically, he did start out, a lot of these other people started out uh, born in America to, you know, Jewish-Russian immigrants. And by the time they were born, their parents were already, like, you know, living on the Upper East Side or in the suburbs or something, and they went to Columbia University. That was not Irving Berlin's trajectory. 
So he was actually born in Russia in 1888. Um, we don't know exactly where he came from, but he says his only memory he has uh, from his first five years in Russia was of him lying on a blanket by the side of the road, watching his house burn to the ground. Uh, so that was so they really escaped the pogroms. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, the pogroms are when the Russian Empire would sort of just you know like send mobs out to attack the Jews. Uh, loot them, burn their houses down, like kill them often. Uh, really bad stuff. Um, Fiddler on the Roof is kind of about a pogrom, although the pogrom that you see in Fiddler on the Roof is a little bit low key. They're sort of like really escaping from Anatevka out of fear of like the worst pogroms that they think are probably going to be coming. Um, anyway, yeah. Oh shit, I think you're right. I'm so I'm I'm such a fool. You, let, let's like resolve this on the air. I'll be so embarrassed if I got a Jewish history thing wrong. Pogrom. Hold on. We're gonna we're gonna really. I'm gonna play the actual audio clip of how to pronounce pogrom or pogrom. Okay, it's waiting. Pogrom or pogrom. Pogrom or pogrom. You were right. I've been saying pogrom. I'm. I don't know why. I just. I. I should turn it. Usually, you're the one who pronounces things wrong on this show, and I'm the one who pronounces it right. Yeah. Okay, uh, so that was a little detour. We're going to get back to Irving Berlin. So, he comes to America, and he's living in abject poverty in the Lower East Side, in, like, tenements. This is back when the Lower East Side was, like, like literal tenements, you know, just, like, a whole family living in one room, which is basically his situation. His father died when he was age 13. His mother took a job as a midwife. Three of his sisters worked wrapping cigars for a living. Uh, his older brother worked in a sweatshop assembling shirts, and he was a newspaper boy, like a real old-fashioned, old-timey newspaper boy. And um, each evening when the family came home from their day's work, they would deposit the coins they had earned that day into their mother's outspread apron, where they would hopefully be able to buy, you know, like some bread and and the necessities of life. So they were, I mean... We will not ever discuss someone on this entire podcast who is as poor as Irving Berlin was. He was true rags to riches. Um, but he loved songs, and he would walk down the streets and he would hear some people playing popular songs on the pianos and saloons and restaurants. This is before there were sort of like records or anything. So um, a popular song, if you, if you were a popular songwriter, you would write sheet music and then sell copies of the sheet music to you know, various homes where people would play the songs on their own pianos, or they would give it to restaurants and bars and saloons where the piano players in those bars and saloons would play the, the songs from the sheet music they had purchased. So Irving Berlin started to memorize a lot of these songs and sing them while he was selling papers, and people would toss him coins. And it became his newest ambition in life to become a singing waiter in a saloon. So basically bringing these other popular songs from other people to the masses. Um... Eventually, he decided he was being more of a burden on his family than a helper, so he left home and sort of, like, lived in, like, a uh, homeless boy's house, um, very Dickensian, and he basically just started singing more and more. Uh, he, what, one thing he started to do was he would take so popular songs and just change the lyrics to make parody lyrics. He didn't write music. He couldn't play the piano at this point. He just could sing all right, and he was really good at coming up with funny lyrics to popular songs, and people loved it. So eventually he was sort of discovered by uh, music halls, the people who had sort of produced this music. He got a job as a singing waiter at age 18, and he was plugging songs in a music hall. Um, 
eventually he sort of worked his way up and got uh, hired by an actual music publisher, Harry Von Tilzer Company, and then he would start actually writing songs for them. Um, and then from that point on, it was just up, up, up. Like that was 18, 1908 when he first got a job as a songwriter. Um, and only three years later, he was going to write Alexander's Ragtime Band. Before I play that song, I just want to note, he also was friends with George M. Cohan, who was another like kid like getting known at the same time. Do you know George M. Cohan? And he was like, I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Da, 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 da. Um, there was a movie about him. Um, so I'm going to play... Uh, his first mega hit, Alexander's Ragtime Band from 1911. And now, like, you know, you have songs of the summer, you have big chart-topping hits. Alexander's Ragtime Band was, like, the first mega monster American hit popular around the world. Every hit today, like, is... Alexander's Ragtime Band was the first one. So I'm going to play you this thrilling song, uh, the most exciting song you'll ever hear. And we can hear what was the most popular stuff in 1911. Oh, my honey, oh, my honey, better hurry and let me end Ain't you going, ain't you going? This is Bill Murray singing, oh, Billy Murray, honey, not the modern one. And here's the chorus. All right, there you go. I've never got the Alexander's Ragtime Band hype. I've actually known that song for almost all my life. Did you know that song? Yeah, I don't think we are members of Alexander's Ragtime Band. Um, and the thing is, I do love Irving Berlin's later music. Uh, but I mean, the thing is that was like, so some, uh, there's like criticism of that song. Like not, I mean, not criticism that it's bad, but like, you know, like scholarly criticism that it's not like actually a rag at all. It's like a march. Um, I was talking to my girlfriend about this. She took a jazz class in college and she says like rags kind of are marches anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time, like, I guess there wasn't a lot of ragtime and jazz in 1911. Like, at that point, there was, you know, like, classical music and folk music, I guess. And this was sort of... I mean, this isn't my area of expertise, but um, it was probably, like, the best banger that had ever been released by a, a popular musician at the time. So, And he's a star. He's a superstar. He, he's releasing songs like no other. Tons and tons of hits. Every song he comes out with is a hit. He is the most popular person in America. He's suddenly rich. But he never acts like a snooty rich person. He like never forgets his roots, and he like always sort of acts just like a you know a humble guy. Um, I'm gonna play a couple other songs by him, um, and you can let me know if you uh, if you've heard of any of them. So yes, you know that one, putting on the Ritz. Okay, Irving Berlin. 
Here's another one, and this is Irving Berlin himself singing the song in 1968, but he wrote it in like the like much earlier, World War II. By a Jew, um, and well, so he wrote it, I guess, during World War One, and didn't use it because um, Irving Berlin was like a huge patriot. He absolutely loved America because he knew there was nowhere else in the entire world where a poor, you know, Jewish boy living in a tenement could, you know, make it rich and like become successful. So he absolutely loved America, and he threw himself into the World War One effort, writing songs for that. Threw himself into the World War Two effort. Um, where they, there was a musical called This is the Army where actual army people were in the cast and they would tour Europe and like perform to the troops and he performed in every single performance singing a song, Oh How I Hate to Get Up in the Morning. And he loved the troops. So he, God Bless America, we sort of think of it as just this sort of, you know, like very, you know, like patriotic song, like, like meant to be sung at football stadiums and stuff. But for him, it was very personal. It was an extremely personal song. When he's saying, God bless America, land that I love, um, the mountains, like it, it's a very personal love song from him. You, you could sort of hear it in his voice there. He wasn't singing it like some you know grand military song. He was singing it like a love song from him to the country that he truly loves. Uh, here's another song that he wrote, and then we'll get into actual Annie, Annie Get Your Gun. Uh, but I think this is important because everyone's... So here's another song written by our, our, our nice uh, Jewish, Jewish friend, um, Irving Berlin. So there you go. Did you know that uh, Irving Berlin, or did you know he, any Jew wrote White Christmas? Like, were you aware of, of yeah, um, and a lot of Jews wrote uh, Christmas songs. I'm actually pulling up a web page right now that I guess is going to list them, but it's taking a long time. Well, whatever. Um, so yeah, dear, okay, well, I'm not having success. So yeah, he wrote that song, so I mean... Um, but, I mean, Jews love Christmas. Like, ever, even before I actually celebrated Christmas for the very first time, I loved the Christmas season. I, you know, would listen to the Christmas music on the radio. Yeah, everyone loves Christmas. Um, not to, like, offend the religious Christians out there, but, like, in addition to being, you know, your most important holiday, it's also become a very secular American holiday. Um, so, I, I absolutely love Christmas. And, uh, segue, so... Either the very first or second time I did celebrate Christmas for real in a Christian home, with which is my girlfriend's home, we were sitting around at Christmas break around her TV, and uh, her little sister decided to put on the Andy Get Your Gun movie, which I had never seen before. Um, yeah, and as we were sitting there watching it, I already had an idea in my mind, this was like two years ago, of doing a Broadway podcast just like this one. So I was already sort of like mentally planning like what I was going to say about this movie. Um as I was watching it two years ago, and now we are here. And we're okay, done with that. that. that was, All right. Yeah. <laughs> that was great. Great work, Jeremy. Yes. Your, uh, your history um, major is showing. Now we can talk about Annie Get Your Gun. <laughs> right, great. I'm very excited to talk about Annie Get Your Gun, um, partly because uh, we came in real hot last time, and um, I still feel the same way I did, so we should uh, get right right to it. <laughs> 
Yeah, so I think one thing that both of us thought of independently when we were watching the Annie Get Your Gun movie, and that's what we did, by the way. We watched the 1950 MGM Annie Get Your Gun movie starring Betty Hutton and Howard Keel. And don't worry, I'll give you my thoughts on Howard Keel. Mm-hmm. Um, but that movie, um, we both watched it separately, and we both realized that it's based, it kind of is very similar to the plot of Grease, mm-hmm. the movie, mm-hmm. and that... You have a woman who's way too good for her romantic interest, the guy. You st- the whole movie is sort of indicating that the guy is in the wrong and that maybe as time goes by, the guy will change and become worthy of the woman. But at the very last second, you realize, no, the woman is going to compromise herself and her morals to get with this guy who she's better than. And everything that we thought this movie was leading up to is betrayed. Yeah, so we were both very disappointed by the ending upon reflection. It's funny, I watched this movie a lot as a child, which I didn't really remember until I started rewatching it. And I was like, oh my god, I watched this like maybe once a day for like six months uh, during one part of my childhood. Um, but it's basically in the end of the film, like we have Annie who's sort of uh, super wild, not educated, that's sort of a big part of her character. And as she joins the circus and rises to fame, um, and falls in love, like, she becomes more socialized, uh, more high society. Um, you know, much like in Greece, right? Like, Sandy becoming more socialized. Um, but I think we're, like, led to think that, you know, we still love Annie for her wild roots. And then in the end, she's having a shoot-off with Frank, who she's had this competition with throughout the whole film. Um, and he can't handle her being better than him. So, finally, to sort of end their arguments so they can be together, she pretends she's worse than him why the r- why so I, I guess i know sorry i just blew out my i recording. guess we haven't established this annie annie oakley is a sharpshooter she's right. a real life person she was a real sharpshooter in like the uh late 1800s early 1900s and this show it was in the post rogers it was after oklahoma so we're now in this integrated musical uh timeline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and dorothy fields who is a popular uh playwright decided she wanted to do a musical about Annie Oakley starring her friend Ethel Merman. Um, so she went to Rodgers and Hammerstein, who were wealthy from the success of Oklahoma and Carousel, and they decided to put on this show. So Rogers, it sort of had the Rodgers and Hammerstein sensibility right. of you know an integrated show, main romantic couple, secondary romantic couple, um, but they brought on Irving Berlin, you know, who we just you just heard me talk about for a while, to do the lyrics. And he'd never done an integrated show before. So at first he was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. I don't write songs about a plot. But then he like sort of actually tried to do it and realized like, oh, no, he can definitely do it. It's just no one's ever asked this of him before. And as soon as someone did ask it of him, he was really good at it. Right. So he comes back with Annie Get Your Gun, and it was a big hit. Um, 1,147 performances. Um, yeah. And yeah. And yet, and yet... And yet, now we look at this uh, musical, and um, I wish it were more feminist. Um, I also wish it was less racist. That's something we talked about that we should uh, return to. Like we, so like, there's this tricky part of Annie Get Your Gun, where she essentially um, joins a Native American tribe, um, and there's like a song about it called "I'm an Indian Too." Um, there's a character like Chief Sitting Bull, um, who was also a real person, and so. Um, like this number just really does not hold up well. Um, it's super racist and uh, like making fun of Native American culture in a way that's uh, really unacceptable. And uh, it's interesting to track the history of the musical, though, because there have been recent productions where that sort of plot has been really trimmed down. The song is now often cut. Um, 
I was reading an article a couple weeks ago um, that I disagreed with, but um, is interesting to, I guess, talk about. Uh, a British critic was talking about the most recent production in England, I think on the West End, and uh, was very angry that that um, number was cut because there's so many other egregious parts of the musical. And the argument was made, like, should we leave the show um, completely untrimmed and consider it for what it was, or like, is it more responsible to cut the number? Uh, I think Jeremy and I both agree that you just cut the number. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, the show is actually, I think, really funny. Yeah, and it is. And up until the very, up until, other than the song I'm an Indian too, Right. Um, and other than the fact that she throws the competition to him at the very end, <laughs> the entire musical is, there's really nothing problematic. Like, she's clearly in the right. Um, the guy who she's in love with is clearly in the wrong. The other characters all comment on the fact that she shouldn't be falling in love with him because she's way too good for him, and he's a, a swollen-headed stiff mm-hmm, or something mm-hmm, is what they keep mm-hmm. calling. Like, the, the musical is extremely clear that she is the hero. Right. He He's, like, a jerk. And then it's just, towards the end, they just throw in this whole Native American storyline with the I'm an Indian 2 song, and then they have her lose... And, and I mean, really, up until the fa- final like two minutes of the show, you think that she's gonna come out ahead, and then she throws it. So, I, I, the nineteen ninety nine Broadway revival, which starred um, Bernadette Peters, right? What they did is they got rid of the song "I'm an Indian" too, and they also made it so in the end she draws in the contest. I don't know if she still like throws mm. it to draw because she could probably win, or maybe they made it so that she. You know, like tries her hardest, and they draw, and then they can be together happily ever after. Right. It's not great. I'd rather her not be with him at all. <laughs> but I'm glad now that there is a version. I think this is the version that if you were to do it for your school, you would get the 1989 version. For sure. I'm glad this version exists so that audiences can enjoy this show. That now with all the bad parts taken out is good, and I understand the whole thing. Like, oh, you're erasing our history. But yeah, I'm not here for we're that. We're not erasing our history. <laughs> no, we're there's a 19 if you appropriately. If you care so much about history, there's a whole 1950 movie for you with all that history. <laughs> we don't need to be we don't need to be doing it in schools. Yeah, we don't need to yeah. um Well, okay, so real yeah, quick. Like the, yeah. I, I want to return. I actually I don't know that I have an argument in the moment because I don't know that I'm familiar enough with the script, but I'm sure there's other things that are problematic in this musical just by virtue of the fact that it was written in what, the 50s? 50s oh uh, 40s 40s yeah so the, the movie was the movie was 1950, 1950 but right. the musical was 1946 i paid lots of attention during the part where jeremy was talking honest um but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah like i'm sure there are other things that are problematic like like frank says a lot of like kind of messed up stuff about uh women and you know like that entire time in our history is super complicated um usually with um you know white people sucking but uh but, like, I think an easy fix that just should happen is cutting that song, and I'm not super interested in the argument for the opposite, because yeah. we have to be responsible um, with the stories we tell. But anyway. Um, yeah, yeah, I think we're totally, we're totally on the same page. Yeah, we're page. on the same page. Um, um, if you disagree with us, there's, there's we'll certain shows like his, the There's certain shows that I think are unfixable. Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. I don't see any reason to ever revive Kiss Me Kate, which we're actually going to talk about. Me and Hannah are recording a doubleheader, so we're going to talk about Kiss Me Kate next. Ooh, but you'll hear about it a week a week from take, now. Um, yes, yeah, so I don't think that is fixable. Um, just like I don't think Taming of the Shrew is fixable. Um, but this is definitely fixable, and I would be okay with like my high school doing this show as long as you 
edit it, you know? Like, I mean, yeah, I I'm, okay. we're also saying that is, like, uh, you know, to white people. So, like, I uh, yeah. I certainly know that as, as a um, privileged uh, white Jewish queer person, I... <laughs> Um, uh, you know, I, I, I wouldn't feel damaged by seeing a production of it, but uh, I think that it's up for interpretation as to whether it would be um, damaging mm-hmm. for other people. Um, Woo! Yeah. Okay, I agree. I guess let's move into the show itself Yeah, we should now. move into the show itself. Um, we should talk about Betty Hutton, really. All that I want to do is mm-hmm. talk about and, Betty and we should. So we love Betty Hutton. We absolutely adore Betty Hutton. Um, we should mention definitely Ethel Merman in the original oh, thing. This great. is sort of her iconic role, or at least it was her iconic role until Gypsy. Some would say it's still her iconic role over Gypsy. Um, and probably Ethel Merman's most signature tune is There's No Business Like Show Business. Great. So um, I have a clip lined up. They actually, uh, there was a movie made called There's No Business Like Show Business, um, which Ethel Merman was in when she was older. And she sings the song. So I've lined up a clip, and you can hear her singing her signature song uh, right now. So here we go. There's no business like show business like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. No way could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra Okay, wonderful. We could let it keep going, but... Uh, it's true that I just yeah. love her singing that song. Um, I love how she hits her, like, there's no... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, something I know I've talked to you about before is, um, I think it's a Brian Stokes Mitchell recording, I could be wrong, but he talks about how, like, for, you know, people make a lot of fun of Ethel Merman now, I feel like, um, just because she has such a, sort of, like, nobody sounds like her anymore. Um, but what Brian Stokes Mitchell says is like, you can't really, um, understand Ethel Merman unless you heard her live because she was like often unmiked and her voice was so big in a way that like doesn't really translate on a lot of these old recordings we have. She just sort of sounds bellowy, um, which I'm here for, but, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think that's like interesting to think about too, just like the quality of her voice and like the time it was being recorded and, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, like, music, I feel like, adjusts uh, to, like, the types of venues that we're performing it in. So the thought of, like, her being unmiked in these huge halls and having this massive voice that was um, just, like, really exciting to people. Um, yeah, I like to think about it that way. She's so cute in that song. Yeah. She is. <laughs> yeah. And if there's any one performer who sort of defines Broadway, the definitive Broadway star, it is Ethel Merman. Yeah, for sure. Um and I wanted to make sure we, like, covered her a, a little bit before we sort of start talking more about Betty Hutton, because I know a lot of people listening to this, especially if you're older, your your introduction to this show was prob- might have been listening to the cast album mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. of the original show with Ethel Merman, but Hannah and I, our introduction to this movie was, or to the show, was the movie. I watched it two years ago um, at Christmas time. Hannah's been watching it since she was a kid. So for us, when we think of Annie Oakley, we think of Betty Hutton. Um, and I think we both adore her uh, more than others uh, can say. Can we talk about Betty Hatton now? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, she's so expressive, she's um, so especially compared to, a, especially compared to a stiff wooden actor just going through the motions like Howard Keel. So before we get into Betty Hutton, let's, uh, talk a little bit about how she got the role in the movie. <clears throat> so they actually, sorry, I'm going to cough. <clears throat> um, 
So they wanted uh, Judy Garland of Wizard of Oz fame and various other movies to play Annie Oakley at first. But at that point, she was sort of addicted to drugs and alcoholic. Um, and she can't really be blamed for any of that. I mean, all the stuff we're hearing about, like with Harvey Weinstein now, like, I mean, think about in the 1940s. Judy Garland was uh, a very troubled person. Um, so she was, at, by this point in her life, extremely unreliable um, in terms of, you know, getting to the, the set on time. She would show up late. She'd often be high. So the sort of product she was giving them was very unreliable, and she wasn't already there. So after they filmed several scenes, they had to fire her and replace her with Betty Hutton, who was an up-and-coming comedian, um, much broader, more physical comedy and humor, um, much more interested in doing sort of like the fake Southern accent uh, than Judy Garland was. I think it was definitely the right choice for the film. Um, it's, it's really too bad what happened to Judy Garland, but I'll play a clip. Um, they actually decades later released uh, two clips of Judy Garland singing uh, in the movie. One was... Uh, Doing What Comes Naturally, which is one of the first songs. I think Annie's first song. And then another, the other clip that you can see on YouTube, Judy Garland, is I'm an Indian too, which we don't really want to replicate on this podcast. So uh, right now you're going to hear Doing What Comes Naturally. And leave the bill with them. What's a bill? Well, a bill is a voucher. Don't you keep books? Don't any of you Start a little early, writing? but this will do. We we don't read as good as anybody. Oh, this is so interesting to hear. It's just not Betty Hutton. I mean, she has a great voice. Oh, I mean, I love Judy Garland a lot. Yeah. And like... It, it, Sorry, go ahead. No, 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 go, you go. So you can't see this unless you watch the YouTube video, but she's sort of going through the motions physically, whereas Betty Hutton throws her entire body into it. Um, and I guess let's just go right to Betty Hutton singing the next song on the show, You Can't Get a Man With a Gun. And you can't see this unless you watch it. You can watch it on YouTube or you can find the movie. But um, she really gives it her all. Her voice is not as like classically beautiful, but like she really tries hard to be like a comic actress. So here's yeah. Betty Hutton. Probably started earlier than I needed to. This is great. Uh. If I went to battle with 
she keeps um, advancing. She looks right into the camera this whole song, which is a weird directing choice, but she keeps advancing right into the camera, like, probably faster than the camera person was expecting, so that, like, it, so it loses its focus for a second, and the camera has to be like, oh shit, and then, like, refocus on. It's pretty fun. She's wonderful. Okay. Yeah, okay, that was good. Nice work. Oh. Okay. So yeah, Betty Hutton, um, I mean, I just want to say how much I'm here for Betty Hutton. Like, I can't overstate how much I'm here for Betty Hutton. Um, she's just so much fun in this film. Like, she's just giving 150% at all times. Um, her voice is so fun. It's really raw, but also really buttery. So, like, she has these, uh, she can sing beautifully. Like, there are moments in the play when she does, or the show, the musical, when she sings really elegantly, um, sort of in, like, some of the more lush musical numbers. But she's also super uh, throaty and rough around the edges and like that's really fun in the earlier part of the show when she's playing kind of like the wilder version of Annie um, but aside from that she's such a ham she's yeah. so fun she's just such a ham she's having such a good time and like compared to what you're saying about Judy Garland and like you know it's sort of like not probably very useful to compare the two just because they're such different performers but like uh, Betty Hutton is so broad and silly and physical and like I couldn't picture the role being done any other way yeah, and here's an example of her singing more pretty, just to prove nice. that she can that she can do it, and that she's like putting on like a role, and right. she's versatile. Sure. Overwhelmed by the the instrumentation there, and this uh, someone just videotaped their their non HD television screen and uploaded it to YouTube. So that's not a great example. Uh, but it, there you, you got go. it. You yeah. made your point. Yeah. Um, no, totally worth noting. Um, I wonder. We. I would love to check in about. We don't necessarily have to play it unless you have it at the ready. But um, the song she sings with Frank. Um, Anything you can do, I can do better because I think it's some of the best writing in the show. Absolutely. So first, let's get into Frank a little bit. So Frank right. is is played by an actor named Howard Keel, who <laughs> I, um, the first time I saw Howard Keel was when I watched this movie for the first time two years ago. And I was like, who's this guy? Like, here she is giving it her all, like really trying to make this a funny thing. And this guy's just standing there, you know, like so, <laughs> so into himself, um, like really, like he really fits the role of of Frank really well because Frank is super into himself. He's not actually as talented as Annie at shooting, but he thinks he's better and that just like informs his character and they couldn't possibly have done a better thing. And they actually did not get along in real life. So everyone on the film, except for the guy who played Buffalo Bill, who's in charge of like the Wild West show that they all joined. And you could tell that that actor is nice just by looking at him. But everyone else was like mad at her for replacing Judy Garland. Bearing in mind, it's not her fault. The director fired Judy Garland had to hire someone. It's like, don't blame her but they did right. blame her so here's a, a quote from uh betty hutton from her memoir uh that she wrote much later um well first so howard keel who played the other guy recalled betty hutton as quote a scene stealer and insecure ah. um and he wrote that on one occasion she was upset because she felt keel was upstaging her and they reshot the scene 35 times until she was satisfied with it i don't believe keel could upstage anyone if he tried so i don't believe right. that story um, and yeah, he was, she was a scene stealer. I mean, yeah, the movie's called Annie, get your gun. Like I would hope she tries to steal the scenes. Correct. Um, and she said about him that Keel was a greenhorn who tried to pull focus, focus from her performance. Mm. 
Um, and she felt the only cast member who treated her with any kindness and respect was Lewis Calhern, who played Buffalo Bill. And she stated, the one day Judy Garland was visiting the set, and Hutton greeted her with a bouncy, Hiya, Judy! Only to be answered with a string of profanities from Garland. Um, so everyone was really mean to her, and she tried her hardest. Um, and uh, for, we'll play a little bit of Howard Keel's first song, The Girl That I Marry, where he talks about how the girl he wants to marry is like pink and soft. And yeah. w- and when Annie comes onto the scene, she's like covered in dirt and wearing like <laughs> like raccoon skins and stuff. Right. Uh, so here's here's Howard Keel. Uh, listen for this wonderful charisma. Away with you, Keel. Keel? Okay, so I take a lot of joy uh, in how much Jeremy hates Howard Keel. So, like, I like I have my own opinions, which are in a lot of ways very similar to yours, but I would really just love to hear you go off on it because it makes me laugh. Well, I just I just think <laughs> I, I think hating Howard Keel is just an interesting choice for someone <laughs> who's, like, was born in 1992, such as uh-huh. I. Like, yeah. it's just interesting... Um, I was at this um, alumni brunch for my college theater company uh, last weekend, and there were like people who graduated from college in the 1960s there. Um, and someone else around my age brought up the fact that I was doing a podcast, and somehow th- someone brought up how- – I didn't bring up Howard Keel. Someone uh-huh. who graduated in the 70s brought up Howard Keel on his own. I didn't say a thing. And then uh-huh. I just like responded like, I hate Howard Keel. Uh-huh. And, and then this old man who was sitting with us, like, just burst out laughing because he probably didn't expect that from me. Right. But right. I was like, finally, someone to appreciate my Howard Keel material. Oh, that's um, good. What a, what a good moment for you. Yeah. So yeah. actually, so the last time we recorded this, I searched ages to try to find, I knew there was a part in the movie where Betty Hutton makes fun of Howard Keel. And like, right. in the context of the show, it's supposed to be Annie making fun of Frank. But you know, in real life, it's her making fun of Howard Keel. Oh, sure. Uh, so I finally found it. Here it is. First. It's like a piracy thing, so I have to like, yeah. Okay, here we go. He sang me a love song. He just spit his heart right out at me. The girl that I met will have to be as soft as This is wonderful. You could also see her like she does a phys- she does like a physical impression of him too. Like she like like moves the same way he does, and you could see she's like almost struggling not to start laughing in the middle because she knows she's tremendous. she knows she's nailed him so well. Right. Oh, God, that's um, great. That's wonderful. I'm really glad we got that. Yeah, I'm so Do- it was it was worth losing the first week actually it was. to get to get that like one right wow. after the other. Hot take. I'm really glad that you feel that way, and that's the real reason that I deleted the audio. <laughs> The truth comes out. I've had it all this time. I just wasn't satisfied with the episode. <laughs> you know, Hannah, Hannah's computer is having serious problems. You guys can't tell listening to this, but we've had to like audacity has crashed for Hannah like five times just to, just today. And we keep uh, it's, it's cool though. We, we've got I need to up my setup. It's fine. We're gonna we're gonna um, we're gonna fix the setup for next time, and this won't be happening again. 
she said yeah, but it's, it's, it's cool. Okay, so now we're going to go to Anything <laughs> yeah. You Can Do. Right, okay, which, yeah, let's do Which you all, you all know this song. This is a super famous so song. You probably good. know the Ethel Merman version better. But I'm so going to play good. the Betty, uh, Betty Hutton, Howard Keel version because, like, they actually hate each other in real life. It's so so just, it, it really just adds to the elements. So we're probably going to play a lot of this song, but here you go. It's basically you loathing. Some wicked. <laughs> anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Oh, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I can shoot up partridge with a single cartridge. I can get a sparrow with a bow and arrow. I can live on bread and cheese. And only on that, yeah. so can a rat. Any notes you can reach, I can go higher. I can sing anything higher than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. 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 No, you can't. Gonna let it go. Anything you can buy, I can buy cheaper. I can buy anything cheaper than you. Fifty cents. Forty cents. Thirty cents. Twenty cents. Uh, that wasn't yes, a good competition. I can, yes, I can. Anything you this can is say, good. I can say softer. I mean, they could just name lower prices. But anyway, right. here we go. I mean, yeah, heard. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Uh. I can drink my liquor faster than a flicker. I can drink it quicker and get even sicker. I like that line. I can open any safe. Without getting caught. Sure. That's what I thought, you crook. Any note you can hold, I can hold longer. I can hold any note longer than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, yes, you I can. As much as I don't like yes. him, I think, he, I, I think he could have beaten her in real life. In how long he holds a note? Yeah, I think he could have smoked her. Like, I mean, he's a, he's like know. a singer, you know. She's she's a comedian. Is, like, is that true? Well, I mean, she's like a singing, like she has a great singing voice, but she like he's like a, an amazing singer. Yeah. His breath control is probably excellent. You could hear when she's trying to sing any note higher. Her breath control wasn't that great. That's my favorite part. I can knit a sweater. I can fill it better. I can do most anything. Can you make a pie? Neither can I. Yes. I can sing sweeter. I can sing anything sweeter than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. Props to Irving Berlin. Yeah. Okay, it's just like such a good, like, character building narrative song. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to me, it's like it, it is a pause in the plot. Technically, like, like there's not a new thing happening, but like, it's so narrative. It's so fun. It's so active. Like they're not like, here's what I'm feeling right now. Like they're engaging. It's a scene. Literally, it's a scene between the two of them. Set to music, and I'm here for it. Yeah. Uh, is it in the running? It's in the running, I think, for best song in American musical theater. I'm not going to say wow. it is the best. I, I make a lot of big hyperbolic statements. I'm not <laughs> going to make the big hyperbolic statement this is the best. 
But, like, I think this is in that conversation. Like, everyone knows the song, even if you don't know where you know it from. I didn't know yeah. it was from Annie Get Your Gun when I watched the movie. Like, it's at the very end of the movie. I'd watched the whole, this whole cowboy movie. And then they go into this song, and I was like, what? This song is from this movie? Because, you know, everyone knows that song. Right. And it's, it's so good. Yeah, it's so good. Um, it's just so good. It's just so much fun. And, like, it, 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 it has aged well, I will say, in a way that, like, a lot of the other things haven't aged well in this musical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do we want to talk at all about, like, anything else in the plot, like, secondary couple stuff? Or... Oh, there was a secondary couple in the Broadway yeah, show who got whatever. cut from the movie, and we could play, like, a song from them on YouTube, but I don't even, like, know. I don't think so. we need to. I think we, if we you d- really want to dig around, no. you can find it. We came to the same decision last time, and we're coming to it this time. Um, Great. I love that. Yeah, so, so I mean... Consistent. I feel like we covered basically everything there is to... Last time, I think we played a little bit of... Um, they got the sun in the morning and the moon at night. Oh, da, da, I do da, love da, 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 that da, da, da. song. That might be my favorite song from Annie Get Your Gun. I said uh, that a lot about every song, though, so... I, don't I was going to say we should cut it, but now that you like it so much... <laughs> Just um, play five seconds of it, and then that'll be our closing. I have to call I'll, it I'll, Okay, I'll, I'm going to think about my scores. Oh, the scores! I forgot about... Oh, wait, yeah. we have to, don't we have to use the same scores, or or can we... Deviate. We should share the scores from last time, I think. Yeah, I think. I'll, I'll call them up. Um, okay. Okay, Maybe here. Maybe like, First... yeah, think of this as Jeopardy music, but instead it's I Got the Sound in the Morning, you know? Yeah. Great. <laughs> What's this? Whatever. <laughs> this is terrible. This is not what I wanted. <laughs> okay, we're going to do an audio recording. Taking stock. There it is. There she is. We'll cut. We'll cut we to something go. good. Here we go. Got no got no Is that good? Yeah, that rocks. Got okay. no thanks. Still I'd like to express my thanks. Okay, so I had to audition for a, um, a musical uh, last year that was based on, it was called uh, The Carols, I believe, and it used a lot of Irving Berlin music. I might really have this wrong. Uh, 1812 Productions uh, uh, produced it in, in Philadelphia, so you should look it up there, and I don't want to misspeak because uh, that would be bad. But anyway, the point is I had to learn an Irving Berlin song to audition for it, and uh, I was going to do Got the Sun in the Morning, um, and then I actually realized that he wrote Blue Skies, so I ended up learning that instead. Um, that was the whole story. <laughs> that's one of like the only. That's like that was because I, I played all those hit Irving Berlin songs. I didn't want to overdo it. I was gonna right. play a little bit of, of Blue Skies, but then I was like, I'm playing so many Irving right. Berlin songs. Um, so quit. Yeah. Okay. So let's get right into the the scores. Let's get to the scores now. Now that I've so I'll so I'll just sort of reveal what they were, and we can right. sort of justify as, as we want. So right. in terms of in terms of was it important? We both gave this a six. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like it's important. It, yeah. It proved that the Rodgers and Hammerstein formula could be done by someone other than Rodgers and Hammerstein, which is the first time that had been done. So yeah. Does this, and this feels like the arrival of Irving Berlin too. Am I wrong in that? No. This is the goodbye of Irving Berlin. Wait. Just kidding. I listened to yeah. Jeremy was doing the history, honest. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. Don't blame him. <laughs> um, the arrival was Alexander's Ragtime Band in 1911. Right, um, we talked all about that. Damn it. Okay, whatever. Okay, anyway. then then was it was it good? Um, I gave it a nine, and you gave it an eight. Yeah, 
I gave it an eight. I mean, was it good? It's tough too. Like that's the stuff that I feel like that's always the hardest thing to judge because like I'm, I'm reticent to give something that I don't think is good a high mark, but I'm also like trying to account for history. So yeah. it's challenging. I mean, we came really close there. This yeah. is the closest we've been. We actually gave it the same total score because then in Is It Good right. Now, I, and we're reviewing sort of like the 1999 and later version uh, where they tie at the end and where you remove I'm an Indian too. Right. I give it a six for Is It Good and Hannah gave it a seven. For today. Yeah. So, yeah. so in total, we each gave it a score of 21 for a grand total of 42, which is actually tied for second place with Showboat. And then Oklahoma's in first place with 51. Oklahoma. Um, so of yeah, of the eight shows we've done, Any Get Your Gun is tied for second. Um, I think we both agree it's better than Showboat, but Showboat correct. got such huge points and wasn't important that that's why they're tied. Right, that's the thing. Tricky, yeah. tricky metric. Yeah, I mean, this was just like this movie was one of my favorite movies as a child. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's hard for me to not um, have a soft spot for it, although it definitely has some problems. Okay, well, we don't want to keep you guys too much longer, Great. so um, I will... Well, hold on, hold on. I have to read that. The outro. Oh, sorry, we have script. an outro. Okay, yeah. Be, sh- be sure to subscribe to Broadway Binge on any podcast app, so you'll be able to get each episode as soon as it comes out. You'll also find our episodes along with links and pictures at our website, broadwaybinge.podbean.com. You can also check us out on Twitter at Broadway underscore binge, where you can join the conversation and leave us a tweet, which leave we'll definitely tweet. read on the air. Leave um, us a tweet. Yes, and don't. It, we'll read on the air if you would like us to. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. This makes a huge difference. If you rate and review us on iTunes, people can discover the podcast. Right now, if you search Broadway on iTunes, we don't show up. And I would like to be one of the options that shows up yeah. if you search that. So please rate and review us if you can. Um, and thank you so much. And we'll see you next week. Uh, it was originally supposed to be Brigadoon, but we watched Kiss Me Kate by accident. So Kiss Me Kate is <laughs> up next. Anna watched Kiss Me Kate by accident. Hannah's been having some troubles, but it's fine. <laughs> yeah, so Kiss Me Kate is up now. There's a chance we'll, like, record Brigadoon or something and then, like, sneak that one in between. But, yeah, so Brigadoon and Kiss Me Kate, those are on your radar. One of them will show up next week. Right, bye. Bye. Bye.